Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to our second Resources Radio Live recording. I am once again your host, Kristen Hayes. Um, as another reminder, Resources Radio is a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. And this week, for the second time, we're recording uh, the podcast in front of a live, albeit virtual, audience. And as a reminder, we'll mostly stick with the regular format of our podcast series, where I'll ask our guests a range of questions for maybe 20 minutes to half an hour. Uh, but the nice thing about the live recording format is that it allows us the opportunity to take some audience questions. So at one more note, in addition to being uh, edited lightly for the podcast, the public webinar is being recorded and will be posted on our website afterwards. So this Resources Radio Live series focuses on topics that lie at the intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic and energy and environmental issues. In our last webinar, we covered electricity demand during the pandemic, and now we're going to be talking about another very important topic, uh, air pollution. And there's been a tremendous amount of both anecdotal and empirical evidence that air quality improved considerably during the lockdown in a number of locations, and particularly when, you know, as vehicular traffic was reduced. So today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Valentina Bossetti, who is a professor in the Department of Economics at Bocconi University and a senior scientist at the RFF CMCC European Institute on Economics and the Environment. Valentina is based in Milan, which of course was one of the early epicenters of viral spread. And she's gonna be talking about research she conducted with colleagues about what happened to air quality in Milan during the height of the lockdown and what that meant for human health. She'll also give us some insights into air quality impacts in other parts of the world, as well as to what extent air quality has reverted to pre-pandemic levels at this point. So thank you again for joining us in this Resources Radio Live recording. And with that, let's kick it off. So Valentina, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. It's very nice to see you again. How's everything going over in Italy? Well, finally much better. Thank you for having <laughs> me uh, here and uh, good morning to everyone or good afternoon. Uh, yes, everything is now finally you know, looking much better. I'm sorry, maybe that's not the case uh, uh, there, but uh, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. So let's hope. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. And we're very happy for you guys. We really are. It is nice to see, as you said, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, well, let's start with some introductions. So can you tell our audience just a little bit about your background and how you started working on environmental issues? And I guess I wondered as well if air quality is a particular interest of yours. Is it something that you've regularly studied over the years? So I am an environmental scientist as a background, then I study environmental economics for, and then my PhD in computational math. And I'm that kind of nerd person who builds climate change uh, economics models. So not really air pollution, which is a local problem, but much more looking into long-term dynamics of the economy and how that affects uh, the climate. But I live in one of the most polluted areas in Europe. So I live in Milan, in Lombardy. As you mentioned, this was one of the first places to be hit and hard by the COVID after China. But it's also, you know, a, a, an important region in Italy uh, where most of the national GDP is generated and is where most of the economic activities are. And so for, for these reasons, together with the fact that the geography is crazy. So we have the Alps and then the Apennines and basically there's mountains all over, all around Lombardy and the Pianura Padana. And that makes uh, circulation of wind and uh, more difficult. So all these together uh, makes Lombardy and Pianura Padana, which, Pianura Padana, which is the plains 
within which Lombardy sits, a very polluted area. So uh, to give you an example, we uh, the area uh, exceeded recommended air quality by the European Union multiple times. We are regu regularly fined by, by the EU. And Milan in particular has very high concentration of PM 2.5 and many other pollutants. And before COVID came, it was very, very bad, particularly bad. We had the worst season ever. So why do I care? I care about air pollution, mostly because I live in a polluted area. And I think if we cannot solve a problem that is local, and it's much more simpler, I don't have to change anything in China nor in India. I don't have to change the power system in India to solve the the local air pollution in Italy. So it must be simpler as a problem to be solved. And on top of this, people that live in the area and that could solve the problem also perceive the damage. So why are we not able to solve a simpler problem when, when you know, it's so evident and in front of the eyes of everyone? So the first question that came to me and the group I work with is, is it because people don't notice? Is it because we don't have enough information? So people might read on the newspaper that Milan air quality is bad, but maybe they, don't, they have enough information. They don't really realize where it comes from, you know, what are the causes, uh, what are the damages and the potential risks for their life. So what is it that people don't understand and uh, that is preventing them from going in the streets and, you know, asking for greater regulation or whatnot. And so we started to monitor. Uh, so there are a lot of stations. There is a great system in Milan, but provides information only the day afterwards. So you only know what air quality was the day before. There's no real-time information. And so we thought maybe behaviorally, if people have real-time information, then this will change things. And so we were very much with our eyes on the monitors. And at the same time, we are collecting information on people's perception in the city when COVID comes. And what I was expecting is, well, from tomorrow, air quality is going to be fantastic. But then we were struck by the fact that air quality wasn't as good as we were expecting. So what was what was happening? Why, why were, you know, people were talking about seeing the sky from, you know, seeing everything until the sea, yeah? and uh, there's, uh, I don't know, mooses in the street or whatever animals, and uh, <laughs> that's the, the fantastic part of, of COVID, and we didn't see air pollution going down as much as we expected. And so that's why we started to study the problem, and we started to look into more into this. Mm -hmm. Basically, I think that's where everything started. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, well, and that's a really, I think that's exactly kind of what's so great about having empirical research related to this, because as you noted, there were a million anecdotal stories about people being able to see, you know, mountains that they had never seen before, and you could see Mount Everest from t places in Nepal, you know, and so I think people did have a sense that air quality was improving in a more tangible way, but exactly how to put numbers on that is kind of a mystery to most of us yeah. who aren't really in, you know, thinking about these issues. So, yeah, and so let's talk about the numbers. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. is it has improved and it was improved. I have to tell you something also. Most yeah. people were appreciating um, not only the air quality, but the fact that cars were not around. And so there were, there were a lot of stories of people really finally enjoying the city. I don't know if it was the same. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the same there. But in Milan, we were not allowed to get out of this uh, our house. So yeah. we were 
really close indoors, no way of appreciating anything of this uh, lower traffic. And for we only had one thing of, you know, that we could do that was doing research. We had a lot of time, a lot of time for the kids, but also a lot of time to do research and trying to figure out why, you know, what, what was going on. So I think that the other part of a lot of research on COVID came out from the fact that people were stuck in house, didn't know. Right. Right. Had to yeah. Use their time. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, before before we turn to more conversation about the study in particular, I am curious, though, did you... Well, also you were stuck in your house, so maybe maybe this was hard to judge. But do you feel like you had any sense that air quality was improving anecdotally in your personal experience of it? Um, was so it changing I, in ways that you felt? So most people did. I was biased because I had the monitor. And so I could see, I, I, did, I do monitor air quality also in-house. And so I was seeing some days it was going much better than usual. Some days it wasn't. We were still above some, you know, the, the required level for safety. Uh, and so uh, that, that was when I started to wonder. Yeah. Well, great. So that's a good lead in. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you and your colleagues found and uh, how you went about conducting the research that you did? So, so we did find, obviously, as everyone expects, uh, a much you know, a reduced average daily concentration, both in PM 2.5 and NO2. Okay, so these are the, the most important pollutants. And we did find a reduction that is, you know, in the range of 15% for PM 2.5 and 34% uh, for NO2. Uh, so these are numbers that we calculated what are called background stations. And uh, background stations are basically stations that are located in places where that are not influenced by anything in particular. This is the general exposure that you would have in any day. Then we also went to traffic station where we found much bigger reduction around 30% in PM 2.5 and uh, um, 37% in NO2. So we find a larger reduction when you really look at stations that are nearby um, big roads uh, and heavy uh, transport. And then at industrial station, a decline in PM 2.5 even bigger, 70% bigger than what you had. So it was, it, it was a huge reduction in, um, at industrial station. So if, if the question is, does this matter? I mean, is it, how much is it? Because most people do not, do not work with this number. Uh, I'm not even giving you the micrograms because most people, but the point is that if you think of the, the, the days we normally exceed, okay, EU uh, regulation, uh, average limits that are, you know, defined by what is safe for humans, then the average limits uh, that uh, we were exceeding this, uh, this uh, threshold was fell down by 55% or 70%. So in general, uh, the city of Milan and Lombardy as a whole uh, was much more compliant with the limits. So we have a big reduction, but still some days Although, you know, the number of days where we were exceeding the EU early average came down for mm -hmm. by so much, we were exceeding in some days mm. the limits. Mm -hmm. And so the big question is, uh, why, uh, why didn't we have a larger effect? And the answer we find is agriculture. So the one activity, so there was a shutdown total, first schools uh, closed. Second activities uh, were, um, you know, most people were required to work from home. But then when the real shutdown came, 
basically nobody was allowed to go out very similar to you know what happened in new york but the activity that was not affected were activity, activity related to agriculture maybe mo mostly because uh, obviously you, you know this is, an, is a source of food for the local community so it's you know, they, they kept doing their business. So that this, the period of February, March, and April is where there is a dispersal of animal liquids on open fields. Okay, this is a very common practice and that releases a lot of ammonia. And this is a, that ammonia is a precursor of PM 2.5. What that means is that with ammonia in the air, basically some chemical reactions happen and PM 2.5, uh, secondary PM 2.5 is formed. So the reason why we didn't see a reduction that we expected was mainly due to uh, agricultural activity. Hmm. And that really led us thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, this is a huge source of uh, PM 2.5. I looked it up and that's as important in the US, but uh, although it's, it's a widespread problem, there's very little monitoring. So for example, we don't have agricultural station. Okay, there's very much less monitoring of this kind of, of pollution. So, you know, we can talk about this later, maybe at the very end, but I think this is a, you know, it was a very important uh, finding for us. The fact that although traffic was off, you know, shut down and most of industrial activity off and a little bit of heating was still going on, but uh, it was a very warm spring. So that was not really important, but we can assume that that was as usual. We still have uh, these days where uh, um, with exceedance of the safety limit. So how did we, you asked me, how did we do it? Uh, basically we were, we, took all uh, pollution stations we have and weather stations. Most of the numbers you've seen out on the press are what are called year-on-year -year studies. So you take the average of air pollution in, you know, one for the last uh, five years uh, in February, and then you compare this to February 2020, and then you say, well, it's less, okay. And it is, already an important number, but it's not taking into account a lot of things that have, might affect the real numbers. As I told you, for example, in uh, Lombardia, what is very important is weather. You know, weather can really affect uh, the concentration of air pollution, and it is a big determinant, the most, the largest determinant. So what we did was basically to use machine learning to train to train a system that was uh, uh, reproducing the pollution stations but only using weather and information about past uh, uh, emissions and then we generated a fake and unreal uh, february march april and may so four months that didn't happen in terms of our pollution that were generated through machine learning and we compared that with what happened in reality. So basically, we had a real exogenous quantification, the possibility of really exogenously quantifying the, the amount of emissions uh, uh, that, that um, uh, the concentration uh, change uh, only using uh, something exogenous, which is the weather. So the big difference with respect to these other studies is that uh, instead of using year on year, you might have a lot of biases with this, we're using this system. Hmm. Interesting. Do you know if anybody else has tried to do anything similar? Is this fairly pioneering as far as you know? 
So there is a study, a, a somewhat similar, not, not entirely similar study done for China, which uh, you know I'm happy to discuss uh, the results uh, if you want. They, uh, but they use a slightly different method. They use a comparison with non-treated cities. So they compare, for example, uh, uh, cities where the lock-in came in first, one uh, in the one area, for example, and they compare uh, uh, that area with areas where lockdown kicked in afterwards. And so they basically generate a synthetic one uh, that is uh, a mix of these other cities where they were not treated and they compare treated and non-treated. So it's somewhat better than you know year on year, which is the very basics. But I think this uh, the idea of having this uh, uh, machine learning system of training and generating um, uh, you know an, an unrealistic or, or or a realistic month that would have happened without the lockdown. I think that's you know the best that you can do. Hmm. Very interesting. And I do want to talk a little bit more about, about China. So thank you for bringing that in. Although I want to come back to that in just a second. I had one more sort of curiosity question for you. Um, so do you feel like this, the research that you have done during this period has really helped you understand more what the proportions of contributions to air pollution are? Uh, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering, was this a, a chance to sort of dial down, you know, transportation and industry and really understand better what agriculture was doing? Or did folks pretty much understood before what was contributing to overall air quality? And this just sort of confirmed that. Does that make sense? So yeah, so we went back to so we discussed a lot with people at the um, uh, regional uh, environmental protection agency. They always had uh, a suspicion because they they you can also when you have this particular matter you can put it in the lab and then you can see whether there's sand and then particular matter is coming from say uh, a sandstorm from Africa or you can see whether there is organic components then it's gonna come you know from different types of activities. So they they tend to do that and mm -hmm. they had an idea that in some periods of the year um, it, it the effect of agriculture was more important also because obviously this process of ammonia affecting uh, or generating secondary PM is not obviously uh, not known but they really were, were never able to pin it down uh, as well as you can with an experiment like the one we had, if we can call it experiment. And they were thrilled. And now they're, you know, we started cooperating because it's, it might be stupid, but, uh, you know, the Lombardy region gets fined many, many times yeah. because of exceeding safety levels. And if you can show that basically, even if you shut down everything, Okay, yeah. everything, then you are still exceeding. That really shows how much important is the geography, the orography of the, of the region. So for them, it's, it's very important. And the other part is that when you have this, you can really go and see it with farmers and say, now you have a very important role because even if we were sh to shut down everything else, you know, you're doing this, uh, uh, you're harming people in the Lombardy region. So let's find a way to reduce those emissions and technologies are out there available so now you know we could quantify how many lives saved you would have with um, you know the introduction of these technologies and we can justify even a subsidy to help them 
using these technologies that avoid leakage of ammonia in the air. So I think it was important because when you really need the air pollution is, is a tricky problem. There's, you know, dispersion, there's a lot of chemical reaction happening in the air. So it's very hard to bring it to court. Now we really have a study where everything else was, you know, you, you have no excuses. So you can really see the direct effect and indirect effect of agriculture. So I think for that is important. They were thrilled about having this study. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And you mentioned something that I, that to, in my mind was actually one of the most interesting pieces of your research too, in which you compared the years of life saved essentially by these improvements in air quality compared to the years of life lost given the terrible nature of the pandemic in the region. So how did you go about making that comparison? And what did you find? What did you find there? So basically there are, you know, you can do this many, in many different ways. And so that's the one part we really need to work now to, which is the part that is less interesting for non-technical uh, <laughs> folks, because it's really, then you come up with a range rather than with a number, but you have to do it because it's not, you know, it's not that you're adding one apple and then sure. uh, it's, it's not that simple. But the idea is that the European Environmental Agency has guidelines, okay, that says, okay, in a, an increase uh, in all cause mortality risk by 6%, for an increase of 10 micrograms per meter cubic increase in PM 2.5. So basically we use the decrease in PM 2.5 concentrations to calculate how much uh, years of life saved uh, were saved uh, in the months uh, in February and, and particularly March, April and May. And the number which if you look at the number, it doesn't tell you anything. Is it 8,000 years uh, of life saved? Uh, if you consider PM 2.5, and 20,000 years of life save if you consider the reduction in NO2. Now, you cannot simply sum the two because there are a lot of interaction between the two pollutants and their effects on health. So it's, you know, you cannot really sum the two. But um, if you want to have a sense of comparison, how much is 20,000 years of life uh, saved, you should consider that uh, um, Due to COVID, in the same period, we have lost 190,000 um, years of life. So basically, the reduction in NO2 gave us 10% uh, um, in terms of life saved than the loss we had due to COVID. Early numbers, very early on, on in the pandemic, back of the empire calculation for China gave um, you know, numbers that were different, that were showing much greater effect of uh, life state due to less air pollution than loss, losses because of COVID. But I think that was because we were very early on, you know, they wanted to get into a newspaper, so they wanted to have a punchline. So we are saving more life with the air pollution avoided deaths than we are with the deaths we have with COVID. But um, uh, it was very early on. Then uh, the number of life that we've lost due to COVID has increased uh, as we have not expected, as most people had not expected, I believe. It is still important though to consider that, uh, you know, it has estimated that we lose something like 60,000, uh, we have 60,000 premature deaths in Italy because of air pollution. And people are very much afraid of COVID, but they don't uh, feel, consider, or fear 
air pollution. So that remains a big, a big reason for showing this number and repeating these numbers because uh, most people don't realize it. And I'm still puzzled why that's the case. I'm still puzzled why now everybody's wearing a mask, but with very bad air pollution, you would see people running around in Milan. Okay, running without a mask, with nothing in a day with very bad air pollution. So I'm still puzzled why that's the case. And maybe if we can find a way to, um, to bring attention to this problem, it's gonna save a lot of life more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I have to wonder too if, you know, like so many things during the pandemic, I feel like I just sort of accepted things as the way they were. And it was only when things changed dramatically that I thought, oh, I guess there is a different, you know, some obviously very extremely negative and some, oh, well, actually we could give more city roads over to bicyclists instead of cars. And so I, I think sometimes it takes a kind of a change or a shift of this magnitude to really um, reiterate for people what they've just kind of accepted as the background conditions of their life. Maybe that's getting too psychological, but I, yeah, but I, I think there is a, a case to be made that we're all realizing a little bit more about um, kind of what our baseline was compared to what what can change but think that people now sometimes you know there's uh, i have no final answer to whether that's uh, you know good science or not but there's been a lot of rumors that air pollution can increase the morbidity of covid okay mm. so we tried to pin it down with rigorous science and we couldn't and i don't think anybody has done that well yet but it is weird that people started to pay attention to air pollution because then you might die more of COVID rather than paying attention to air pollution because you might die because of air pollution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, that, really, uh, that really is, I don't understand that. And I think, again, it's a problem that people don't notice and we have to put monitors everywhere. People have to know when it's a risky day, when you should not you know, do your walk with your kids uh, uh, and the park because there's very bad air quality. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit more about China because I know that's obviously another uh, country of very great importance in the pandemic conversation. Um, is there anything else that you would want to mention to us about you know, initial, your initial work or others' initial work looking at these air quality trends in China? You've described a little bit of it, but um, other findings that have come out of that other important epicenter that you would want to share with the audience? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think the most uh, again not to give you numbers because uh, it will bore you to death. But I, th <laughs> I think the big bottom line of the studies that are out there, there is a very good one by Cole Elliott and Liu uh, on uh, on China, is that while NO2 concentration really came down, so was a pollutant, it really came down to levels that were very close with safe limits by the World Health Organization. PM10, because most of the study look at PM10, not PM2.5, so this is a, a little larger particular matter. PM10 fell from a level um, way beyond the safe limit. So, so it was super high, but didn't fall below the safe limits. Hmm. So the bottom line is that although there was a, a big, big, big reduction uh, in NO2, uh, particular matter fell a lot. It, it, it came down even by 35%, but it was so high before, it was still above the safe limits. Hmm. And the other interesting um, elements that was discussed in some of these papers is that when NO2 comes down, 
because NO2 reacts with ozone and destroys ozone. Ozone is good when it's up there, it protects us, but it's bad when it's a level where we all walk and breathe. Mm -hmm. So NO2 reacts with ozone and destroys it. When you have less NO2, ozone goes up. And so although NO2 was going down because of the fact that NO2 was going down, ozone went up to uh, unsafe limits. So, uh, you know, it, good, good and bad of the, of the effect of the COVID in China. But some of the studies suggest a number of lives saved. And here, most of the study report not um, uh, years of lives saved, but really lives saved. Uh, which I think is a, it's not a good metric, but it's not my study. And uh, the numbers are in the range of 10,000 uh, for all China. But some study, you know, say 30,000. So it really depends whether these studies are year on year, they're how precise they are. But generally, I mean, nobody has a doubt that NO2 and PM fell. Um, it wasn't enough. Even the lockdown wasn't enough for China to bring down PM, uh, at least PM10, to levels that were safe. So there's still a long way to go. Yeah, it really does illustrate the magnitude of the challenges that I think a lot of places are up against when it comes to both the kinds of emissions we're talking about here, but also CO2 emissions. You know, a lot of people commented as well about that same phenomenon where no matter how much we reduced activity, we still didn't really make a significant dent in CO2 emissions too. So we have a, a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess I wanted to, you know, it, a few months have passed since the most strict lockdowns. Um, and I asked this question of our last guest, but I want to ask this to you as well. What have you read or seen or experienced in, you know, or again, seen in your own data sets about um, how air quality levels have rebounded in this case, in a very negative way, but rebounded to where they were before. Is there any continuing change or have things really kind of gone back to previous levels? So China, total rebound. Huh? Most of stu most studies, you mentioned also greenhouse gases and certainly in greenhouse gases, we had a total rebound in China. Um, I would say that rest of the, the rest of the world is not back to normal. And so we cannot say yet what is it, uh, well, you know, what it will be when we will back, be back to normal. Because, for example, it's now considered unsafe to take public transport, which was, you know, one of, one of the main ways to get around in, in big metropolis in Europe. And for now, most people are using cars. So how's that going to play out in, in uh, the fall when people are going to go back working is a big question. So there was a spike in the use of bikes. That is good. But so and overall, so it's yet unclear uh, how it will it will end. I've I've seen today the numbers from Copernicus. Copernicus is the if you want to have fun, Copernicus atmospheric monitoring services shows you what's <laughs> going on in every city in Europe mm -hmm. and in the world. And it's still the case that NO2 is lower than average than previous years in most cities in in Europe. So, but I don't know whether. I mean, I'm sure that's because we're not back to normal. I would not see why we get out of this COVID crisis and are suddenly better. And uh, um, hopefully we won't be worse. We have to do our best and not to get back from the crisis and be worse, but uh, it's not very, it's unplausible that we're gonna be 
better and you know um, more willing to cut our emissions etc yeah am i depressing Sorry. no it's okay it's all right <laughs> but it does it does make me wonder too you know this um i really don't want to imply that this situation has been good in any way i know it's largely been disastrous along a range of dimensions but i do think that as you pointed out it has provided you know researchers had both the time and the and the sort of natural experiment for lack of a better term to to ask a lot of questions that are difficult to ask without these kind of shocks to the system so yeah so it has provided some interesting learning in the short term and of course it will provide additional learning in the long term and i guess before i turn to the audience i just wanted to ask you know what are you going to continue this line of research over the years? What are you hoping to sort of study next related to these questions? So uh, I mentioned we wanted really to pin down the COVID relationship, the, 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 the PM 2.5 exposure and the higher morbidity with COVID, but it's, it's, it's too difficult. We would need you know data we don't have, although we have very good data on um, information about uh, people who unfortunately got the disease, etc. We don't have enough good information about air pollution. And so this is, I think this is where we have to move next. We have to put monitors everywhere. We have to use citizen science to get much more granular information on how much we are exposed to this uh, air pollution for two reasons. Well, one is that we can then study much better, you know, how much exposure affects anything uh, in our daily lives. Apparently it affects diabetes, apparently it affects even the mood, it affects, you know, our performance in, in any task, even mental tasks. So it is important to get better data too. If you get all this data, people will know, people will finally see it and so, they will maybe want to support policies to cut uh, to cut uh, emissions. So I think the one thing that I will move, uh, I'm really moving back to is uh, this big survey we are, we are doing in uh, two US cities, two Chinese cities and two Italian cities where we are uh, con continuously collecting information on how people perceive climate change, but also how people perceive uh, air pollution risks, uh, how, and, and how they perceive other things. We did it because we didn't want it we, we did the survey this way, we designed this way, we didn't want to give out immediately the fact that this was a survey about climate change. And so we were putting questions about fears of other things. So now we have good indications, for example, of how fear of, of um, air pollution uh, change throughout time and whether that's, for example, actually correlated with the PM 2.5. So do people change their perception on the basis of what's going on or do they change the perception on the basis of what happens on Twitter, which we're also monitoring, or do they change their perception because of what happens on the news? And, uh, and we were running this when COVID happened. So we have a great opportunity also to study how a new fear entering the picture has affected how much people feared other things. So studying people's attention to air pollution and how that's affected by various factors where we want to go. Mm, great. 
Oh, Valentina, this has been such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. So let me close the recording today with our regular feature, which we call Top of the Stack. And I'd like to ask you if you have anything you'd want to recommend to our listeners and, and viewers. Um, it could be a book, an article, another podcast. Uh, again, either on this topic or on, frankly, just on something of interest to you um, that you'd want to recommend. So, Valentina, what is on the top of your stack? So, I have two books. One is Pillover. I understand that it's kind of everybody's talking about this, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's an important book to, you know, it, there's a lot of detail, maybe, maybe too much detail. Maybe you don't want to read it like a novel, but you want to skim through, <laughs> but it's a incredible book by David Quammen and really tells you a lot of the stuff that you want to know and you don't want, you know, you want to correct people when they're not, um, you know, being precise about all this. So I think Spillover is a great read. And then something that is sort of related but unrelated, which is a beautiful book called When Breath Becomes Air. It's a nonfiction autobiographical book written by um, an American neurosurgeon. His name is uh, Paul Kalaniti. And it's, this is his memoir because uh, he died of uh, lung cancer. But uh, it's a, this is an amazing book that makes you remember why we are doing this. Hmm. And it's very well written. It's a master. It's very, very beautiful. And hmm. so in some way is related because it talks about breathing and mm -hmm. air and some other ways is related because it talks about, you know, giving meaning to life, which is mm -hmm. what we're all trying to do. Hmm. Well, what a wonderful way to close. So thank you again. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks again to all of our viewers. Thanks again, Valentina, and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.